Hi, and thanks for joining us for another Room and Room podcast. So good that you could listen in. Thanks and great to have you along. So my name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a veterinarian and ruminant nutritionist based with the PGG Rights and Seeds team here at Kimihia Research Centre in Lincoln and Canterbury, which of course is in New Zealand. If you've listened to a lot of these podcasts over recent times, you'll notice that we've covered a lot of dairy cow nutrition themed podcast topics. Now, it was probably about time to add a sheep themed topic into our mix. And it's awesome being out and about and catching up with many of you uh, travelling around New Zealand. And I yes, I've had my ear chewed off a couple of times over the last two weeks from a couple of people saying, hey, like Room and Room podcasts are great, but where are all the sheep topics in these podcasts? And to be fair, that's a fair call. So sheep people tuning in, this one is for you. Never fear though, dairy nutrition listeners, our next topic will be a dairy one just for you guys, so stay tuned. Well, at the time of recording this podcast, autumn has arrived in New Zealand over recent days, although for many of you in very sodden, wet parts of New Zealand, you'd probably argue it's been autumn for the entire summer. But anyway, the topic, I guess, for sheep farming breeder finishers who will be looking at potentially moving into mating themes or thoughts, mating, tupping, joining. If you're tuning in from Australia, call it whatever you like. This uh, period of time for spring lambing uh, breeder finishes is very much about the ewe meets the ram, boy meets girl, and for us to essentially get as many kilos of lambs weaned later in the year. So more lambs and or um, lambs that have finished at a heavier weight or, or weaned at a heavier weight. So in this, our latest Room and Room podcast, what we're going to do is focus on specifically on the nutritional aspects uh, of you hopefully reaching some decent scanning, lambing and ultimately weaning percentages uh, as breeder finishes. So well, here's hoping anyway. Now, what we're going to do is work through some of the basics of mating your ewes with a specific deep dive into what we call flushing or essentially getting our ewes on a rising plane of nutrition as we head into mating time uh, where rams meet ewes. Now what we're going to talk about is uh, I guess first up why we want to flush our ewes pre-mating, in other words rising plane of nutrition, how we think that perhaps that whole flushing thing works as a way to improve your ovulation and hopefully conception and pregnancy success when we feed ewes heading well into mating. Then we're going to move on to the topic around how's the best way that we can flush our ewes, including topics such as how much on average will your ewes need to actually get their ovulation rate and therefore pregnancy success firing up. We'll talk about the types of forages that we can flush on. And of course, if there's any feed types or concerns that may be under some situations less than ideal to flush on. 
So look, in this podcast, we're not going to focus specifically on aspects around hoggit mating. Uh, It's not to be ignoring hoggit mating, but look, it'll be easy enough to cover uh, the broader topic around hoggit mating, perhaps as its own standalone podcast, if that's of interest to you. You just let us know, um, just message, drop a comment here on wherever you're listening in with this, uh, or come across to the Room and Room uh, in Facebook, and you can drop a comment or do your own post there about what you'd like us to cover for you, not just limited to myself, Charlotte Westwood, but for us getting specialist speakers in as well. And finally, in the last section of this latest podcast, we'll of course um, touch briefly on some of the non-nutritional causes of variable ovulation rates uh, in your ewes and therefore with your inland successes. So that'll be like just to, to cover off some of the a list, if you'd like, of other topics that we won't go into as much detail as we will with the nutritional topic. So yeah, in the meantime, with this latest podcast, settle in with your feet up, coffee, beer, wine on hand, or uh, if you're out and about, just keep on doing what you're doing. Perhaps your mum and dad's taxi service yet again with the kids, tractor work, fencing, yard work, or just whatever is helping uh, pass the day for you. So right, let's get stuck into this topic about the nutrition effects of getting your ewes and lamb. I suppose first up, the question has to be asked, what on earth do we mean by flushing ewes pre-mating? And why do we want to flush or lift for the uh, nutritional plane for our girls uh, before they meet the ram? Well, look, in simple terms, flushing is a term that is used, I think, internationally, not just uh, for our listener base predominantly here in New Zealand and Australia, but Essentially, flushing is a term that means the get, getting the ewes set up really well before they go out with the ram. And as we said before, that's tupping, mating, joining, or whatever. Boy meets girls. Another way to define flushing is, as we say, uh, getting the ewes on a rising plane of nutrition heading into mating. So in other words, getting the ewes to eat more than they normally would eat for a period of time that we'll talk about in terms of how, how long a time before the rams actually head out uh, to, to meet up with the ewes. And what we're hoping to do with flushing or a rising plane of nutrition for ewes is to ultimately increase ovulation rate so that uh, we get a higher ovulation rate, more eggs or oocytes released per cycle with the aim to improve our scanning percent, lambing percent and then ultimately uh, tailing or docking through to weaning percent. This might work in two different ways. If we have a ewe who has not yet started to ovulate as a seasonal breeder coming out of the summer, we're hopeful that the rising plane of nutrition, along with other factors such as day length and all those other factors, that the rising plane of nutrition may help that you to actually initiate the ovulation process if she's otherwise not ovulating yet. Or if she's already ovulating, that instead of perhaps dropping just a single oocyte or egg, that instead she will uh, have multiple ovulations, that her ovary or ovaries will yield more than one oocyte or egg, therefore hopefully increasing ultimately the number of uh, perhaps twin lambing ewes that you have. Triplets are good, but not for all systems. For those of you that don't like triplets a whole lot with associated challenges nutritionally around managing that, and that's another room and room topic another day. 
So, look, at the end of the day, whatever we can do to improve your ovulation rate and ultimately come through with a better lambing, tailing, docking and uh, uh, weaning rate will, of course, hopefully end up with not only improving metrics or measures around productivity, and that includes everything from feed conversion efficiency, therefore reduced methane per kilogram of uh, lamb meat produced, etc., and then ultimately, hopefully, through to profitability outcomes. So if we can get a successful lambing percentage running along with other aspects of the reproductive cycle for the ewe that we can cover, such as um, mating through to scanning, scanning through to lambing, lambing through to weaning as parts of the production cycle, we'll cover it. Other Room and Room podcasts ultimately improving the bottom line. So in terms of if we do get this flushing right, what sort of changes to ovulation rate and therefore lambs born per ewe and weaned and all, all those sorts of metrics, what can we expect to see? Well, look, if you do a literature search internationally, they reckon, researchers internationally reckon that we could see up to anywhere up to 10% more lambs born per ewe. Uh, New Zealand work done historically suggested perhaps that's more like 6 to 7% more lambs born per ewe. And look, if we're in that vicinity, we'll certainly take that uh, as a productivity and profitability measure. Thanks very much. And let's be honest, researchers might tell us these numbers, but to be honest, depending on the genetics, depending on the baseline you're starting from, you may well see uh, ovulation and ultimately lambing benefits well beyond that 5 to 10% range. But look, we'll certainly take it whatever it is as a way to improve overall farm performance. And importantly, we might talk about ovulation rates increasing, but remember whether these actually work through to extra numbers of lambs weaned uh, at the end of the lamb production cycle do depend on many, many factors. So a higher ovulation rate should improve other reproductive success metrics, but of course all those other stages along the way that we'll certainly cover if you'd like some more podcasts to examine the reproductive success of your ewes. This flushing is all about initially, in the very least, driving a higher ovulation rate. So this higher ovulation rate, how do we reckon flushing actually works to lift ovulation rate? (laughs) Look, to be very honest here, the scientists aren't entirely in agreement of just how the flushing process works. Now, you know, at the end of the day, everyone agrees that flushing use pre-tup does work. But for those of you that are kind of curious about what happens inside that black box of that you when she's being flushed, <laughs> this one's for you. So one theory is that when use eat more, uh, over and above maintenance levels of feeding, and when the quality of feed's really good, what that could do is uh, result in uh, the blood supply that supports picking up nutrients from the rumen, from the small intestine, that flow of blood increases, meaning more blood's leaving the gut, and it heads through what's called the portal vein that carries all of the nutrient goodies um, from the rumen intestines back to the liver for further processing. Essentially, this is what happens when you eat more, is that the volume of blood passing through the liver every day increases quite a lot. 
So all of the stuff and used blood that gets more goes at passing through the liver a few more times through the day than if you use fed at maintenance. Lots of other things in the blood aside from nutrients, including the six steroid hormones, estrogen and progesterone, pass through the liver more often and therefore the liver grabs, if you'd like, and takes out uh, those steroid sex hormones, estrogen and progesterone, from the blood supply, causing a very small decrease in those hormones in the blood. Now, in response to those lower levels of estrogen and progesterone, the use uh, hypothalamus, which is a little bit in the brain, and the pituitary gland, those clever little bits in the brain detect that, oh, um, we need more sex hormones. So what those, uh, the hypothalamus and pituitary do, is then prime up the range of interrelated hormones, particularly one called uh, FSH or follicle stimulating hormone, and that drives through being um, sent through to the blood uh, back to the ovaries what we call follicular genesis or the final maturation of a lot more follicles than if a ewe had been fed at maintenance. So net gain is big, fat, healthy, mature follicles that wouldn't have been there otherwise and those follicles go on then to ovulate, increasing the ovulation rate of a flushed ewe compared to a ewe fed at maintenance. Now, this liver theory is just one process that's proposed around how flushing kind of causes that bounce up in ovulation rate. There's one other theory, well, actually several theories, but the only other theory is actually a very similar one to the liver-based one. But uh, the scientists reckon that rather than the liver taking out those steroid sex hormones, instead perhaps that the higher levels of blood glucose and blood insulin that comes from flushing actually work directly on the follicles already present in the ovary and actually directly reduce the secretion of estrogen from those existing small follicles. So then the rest of the process works in the same way as the liver theory and that less estrogen uh, results in those clever bits in the brain, the hypothalamus of pituitary gland to bounce into life and to produce more of those hormones particularly FSH or follicle stimulating hormone to then stimulate the maturation and final ovulation from those big fat stimulated follicles in the ovaries. Whatever theory, uh, you can promptly switch off on all of that if it was of no interest, but if you like the black box of trying to understand how flushing works, that one was for you. The question I suppose in a slightly negative sense, hopefully not, is does flushing always work for all use every time. Now, again, it's a biological system, so we'll have to answer this with the simple answer that no, flushing doesn't always work. And as a result, not all of your use will necessarily respond with a higher ovulation rate in response to flushing. Now, there's lots of moving parts in this flushing thing that's happening. And Unfortunately, there's always going to be a proportion of use, no matter what we do, that won't necessarily respond as we want them to, to flushing despite our very best efforts. Now, some of the specific factors that may change the response by some use, but not others, to our flushing would include some of the following points. The first point we'll talk about in terms of expected response to a rising plane of nutritional flushing as you head into the period of time to, to throw the uh, rams out with the ewes. Number one thing that influences this 
is the body condition score of your ewes when you start increasing their feed levels to actually start flushing. Body condition score, BCS, body condition score, is a really important driver of ovulation uh, and therefore reproductive success. But I guess we'll back the bus up for a moment here and say, yes, condition score at the time of starting to flush use is one thing, uh, but the other point is the actual condition score on day one of mating as use head out to the ram. This work was defined really well in New Zealand a, a number of decades ago uh, in terms of this BCS effect on ewe reproductive outcome based on a lot of work done by a clever guy called Professor Coop, very well known in agricultural circles for some of the older ones of us around and, and perhaps older ones listening into this today. Prof Coop defined the importance of body condition score uh, and or live weight, but let's focus on condition score and how that affects reproductive outcome of ewes based on what he defined as either the static effect or the dynamic effect of body condition score. So with the static effect, what we mean by that is the actual body condition score of a ewe at the start of mating. Is she a condition score 2? Is she a condition score 4 on the scale of 1 to 5? And what this simply means is that if a ewe is in very good body condition score when she goes to the ram, and we'll define this as probably somewhere between 3 and 4 on that 1 to 5 scale, there's a very like, high likelihood that that ewe will have a positive mating outcome. So that's at a particular fixed point in time, what condition score your ewe is at. If a ewe goes to the ram at a 3.5, she's got a much better chance of ovulating, multiple ovulations, um, than a ewe perhaps it's at a lighter score, of maybe 2 to 2.5. So this is what we call the static effect, a single point in time, uh, what condition score the ewe is at. If she's in good condition, she's going to do well, and that's got nothing to do with flushing. And all of the clever researchers work that's been done say that we can hopefully expect an increase anywhere from a 6 to 10% in ovulation rate for a U at a body condition score of 3.5 when she goes to the RAM compared to body condition score 2.5. So this static body condition score has to be uh, a useful uh, target to aim for when we're looking at reproductive success. On the other hand, the second way that body condition score influences uh, ovulation and therefore reproductive success is what Prof Coop defined back in the day as the dynamic effect. And dynamic means change and move. So in other words, the dynamic effect is, of course, the flushing effect or the lift in body condition score as use head into mating. So if use are flushing really well, we can expect perhaps a lift in 5-10% to 10 in ovulation rate. However, the responsive used flushing, or in other words, this dynamic effect, is very much to do with the condition score of your use when you start flushing them. If your use are in light body condition score when you start to feed them better, to flush heading into mating, they will respond better in terms of a potential lift in ovulation rate than if your ewes are already in a really good condition. So if your ewes are already 3.5 or even 4 getting pretty fat, 
they won't give you a good response or they'll give you a much lesser response um, to the flush effect and lifting ovulation rate compared to your lighter use. Now, I guess this is where the first practical opportunity kicks in, in that in late summer, if you routinely body condition score your use on an individual U basis and to pull out those lights, let's say, what well, depends on what uh, proportions of lights you have, but let's say you take out all U's that are under a, a good score three and everything else is a three to a four, you've now got an opportunity to preferentially feed those lighter U's and uh, work on both the dynamic or static effect depending on how much time you've got on your hands. If, for example, you've got a challenging autumn, it may be coming out of a drought or it may be unfortunately, like for example, areas in New Zealand that have been quite badly flood affected and could be tight for feed. To condition score your ewes before mating and draft the lights out is a really awesome way to allocate any available good quality feed to your ewes uh, and then for dollars in versus dollars out, your lighter ewes are much more likely to give you a good bump up and ovulation of those ewes than if you preferentially fed your heavier use, which is you're not going to do intuitively. That, that doesn't work, doesn't sound right, does it? So you're not going to do that. So ultimately, by drafting your lights out, condition scoring individual use, um, you're going to get a better bang for bucks out of any uh, opportunity to feed those use better than your heavy ones. So now in better years, if you're coming out of a good summer and you've got use and good body condition score already and you don't have much of a tail of lighter use and your feed budget's well set up, by all means, flush everything, including your heavier use. But specifically in tight feed years, you'll get your best return on your investment by your better feed going to your lighter use. Now, you're probably already reading between the lines here. I'm going on and on and on about this BCS body condition score as a key driver of you reproductive success. So um, it's not only true for uh, pre-mating, pre pre-tupping, but it's also true for getting your use in good condition at all stages of a reproductive success, uh, cycle, like from uh, scanning to set stocking pre-lamb through to lambing uh, through to weaning. So other topics another day, but certainly, hopefully, you're uh, if you're not already body condition scoring, you use at key points of the reproductive cycle, and if you're sure to feed this uh, early autumn, that may be the year that maybe get amongst it. It's going to be reasonably easy if if you use it recently been shorn because you can actually run your eye over them. Otherwise, if they've got more wool on them, you're going to have to go hands on through the yards um, to pull those lighter ewes out. Reach into resources, um, beef and lamb, talk to your vet, talk to your uh, consultant if this is something that you'd like to get into to improve your management of some of your lighter condition use. So I guess that's, that's what the first thing that influences what sort of response you can expect to see or not see from flushing, and that's very much the body condition score of the use and whether you're going to get that dynamic effect or flush effect or not. So that's certainly a very useful lever to pull if you'd like um, to make sure you're targeting the right use. From that, I guess, we move on to the number two factor that influences responses uh, to any flushing or rising plane of nutrition heading into mating. And this is, of course, how long you choose to or are simply are practically able to flush your ewes for before they go to the ram. Now, in the ideal world, that doesn't always exist out there, but clearly flushing for a longer period of time is beneficial as in <laughs> the ideal, are you ready for this? It might not work at your place this year, but ideally we'd aim to flush our use starting up to six weeks 
before the ewes head out with the ram. And then once those ewes have been out with the ram, ideally, again, the ideal world, we'd carry on at those higher feeding rates for perhaps another three to four weeks um, after the rams have first uh, gone in with those ewes. As we all know, the ideal world doesn't often eventuate and every year we have challenges and often we don't have that luxury of lots of uh, appropriately good quality feeds to feed through before uh, mating and then during mating. So I guess do what you can do within reason. Flushing use for at least three weeks before the rams head out. Yeah, I mean that would be amazing if you can do that. Uh, if feed is very, very, very tight, I guess you can flush for at least 14 days, but probably if you're really tight, you're better to go for at least three weeks, ideally six weeks, at least three weeks. So if you're tight that you think you can only flush for a week or so, it's probably time to make a decision around perhaps feeding in a supplementary feed or seeking some better quality feed elsewhere to allow you to reach those longer periods of flushing just so we can optimise uh, your ovulation rate and ultimately in lamb and weaning numbers. The longer we flush for, what we're trying to do is getting the ewes to have at least one 17-day cycle and then having a second cycle before she goes to the ram, but not always ideal. So again, if, if we can't get that duration, it could be that you do target three weeks, but you target the lighter ewes, as we've said before. So I know we're going on and on about this point, but yeah, it's all about allocation of feed how much you can allocate to what proportion of your ewes and for how long. So that's about doing a little bit of a back-of-the-envelope feed budget and, again, asking for a bit of help if you're not sure about uh, that, particularly if you're going to be feeding sheep nuts or, or grain or allocating forage crops or whatever, just to help to do a little bit of a feed budget on that one. So aside from the first point we covered, you body condition score, uh, at, at before and at mating, and the timing or duration of the flush effect, what's the next point to focus on? Is how much more do we need to feed ewes over and above maintenance to genuinely get a good flushing or rising planar nutrition effect? Well, again, we look at what the experts tell us because I guess we're all a bit more hands-on people, but the gurus reckon that on average, from a feed budgeting point of view, we need to be targeting to feeding our flushing ewes to be trying to get them to gain between half and one kilo of live weight per week um, of flushing. So in other words, if we go to a daily basis, that's anywhere from 75 to 150 grams of live weight gain per ewe per day. Now, in terms of defining what does that look like for your ewes, depending on the age of the ewes, depending on uh, the mature weight of your ewes, there is, of course, a heap of really good references available online, on bookshelves, etc., to find out what that means for your feed budget and whether you're a kilograms of dry matter consumed or offered kind of person with your planning, whether you're like the megajoules of metabolizable energy or MJME, whatever you're after, there's a lot of stuff out there online. So beef and lamb, a lot of good resources here in New Zealand, MLA, Australia, uh, online calculators uh, for deciding on a, on a mob basis what your ewes need using the likes of FeedSmart. But I guess... If we lean into a, let's use a 
specific example so you can hopefully get a feel for the quantum of additional feed that ewes need to do this magic, let's say an average of 100 grams live weight uh, per head per day during flushing. So we'll pick on, let's, let's go on average if you'll use uh, 65 kilos live weight today. Now if she's been cruising along at maintenance through the summer, she would have been consuming around about 11.4 megajoules eaten per you per day just to do her basic maintenance stuff. Things like, you know, she's just walking around and breathing and ruminating and dung out the back end and all those basic things of just ticking along. So that's 11.4 me eaten. If, on the other hand, you would like that you to have every chance of ovulating well uh, and she's heading into going out with the rams in another, say, three weeks' time, and we feed budget to allow her to gain 100 grams of live weight gain per day to target for that flush effect, and that's obviously increasing her energy demands over and above that baseline of maintenance of just 11.4 me per day. Now, to get to that magical 100 grams of live weight uh, gain per day for a mixed-age ewe, that energy requirement's going to lift from 11.4 me instead to 18.2 me consumed, not offered, but actually goes down, down the food hole. And that's what we need to trigger better ovulation rates, particularly if she's a lighter ewe. Now, if you've just totally zoned out, <laughs> talking to the kids, looking at the tractor window, because that was a bit much. If ME's not your thing, that's absolutely fine. Um, we convert those ME figures to, let's say, uh, let's say autumn pasture the ewes are going to flush on contains, let's say, 11 megajoules ME per kilogram dry matter. All we do is take that 18.2 ME um, that the ewe needs to eat to flush and divide it by 11 because there's 11 ME in every kilo of dry matter she's eating. And that means we'd have to be feed budgeting for that ewe to be consuming, not offering her, but consuming 1.65 kilograms dry matter of pasture per ewe per day to get that magical 100 grams of live weight gain over and above maintenance feeding. So she's moved from just a little over one kilo of dry matter pasture um, for a 65 kilo ewe for maintenance, and we've now pushed her up to 1.65 kilograms dry matter consumed to try and target that 100 grams um, of live weight gain per day or um, 700 grams per week. Now, another way to get some practical boots on ways of deciding uh, what you use need. Look, really respect that there's some amazing people out there farming in an amazingly efficient and effective manner without even thinking about either ME or kilograms dry matter. Totally thumbs up on that. That's that's cool. So, of course, another way if these numbers aren't your thing is to tackle this higher rate of feeding for flushing your lot of use especially is just to take a very basic approach to this talking about for pasture-fed ewes based on the, the sward height of your pasture. Now, not as scientific, but I'll tell you what, it works bloody well for those of you that aren't into those details and numbers around ME and stuff. So practical boots on what we're still targeting is improved ovulation and therefore reproductive performance, but we're going to run it off pasture sward height. Now, what we want is uh, ideally a higher sward height for when we're feeding for 100 grams of live weight gain a day for flushing ewes. Ideally, rather than set stocking them, we'd love you to rotationally graze these ewes just so they're getting fresh green pick on a regular basis and hopefully stimulating them to keep eating. And what we're targeting with rotational grazing is probably going in around about 
uh, into a new paddock or new um, sward uh, as a break perhaps of six to eight centimetres um, height and then moving them on when they've reached no lower than three centimetres height. So of course you can buy, we, we can just scrounge pasture sword sticks from Farmax and others um, to get an idea of height and also that will translate to kilograms dry matter per hectare based on sword sticks. Uh, MLA for example have pasture sword sticks as well. Sorry I'm just talking about New Zealand here. Or just go and nick uh, one of your, your kids' rulers out of these school bags um, and, and get amongst it. Particularly if you've got your fave boots um, that you wear on farm every day and just get the kids' plastic ruler and, and measure up. But three centimetres may be the, the height of your, your toe of your boot and, and then six to eight centimetres may be where the part of your boot, where your lower leg kind of joins your foot, if that makes sense, down the, the front of your foot, um, in front of your ankle. So that might be six centimetres. But yeah, just, just measure it up. And as we say, we want them going into six to eight centimetres pasture and we want them coming out again no lower than three centimetres if we want to chase the type of feed intake that's going to drive this flushing type effect for your ewes. So that's the quantity of feed, but of course not all pastures and crops and supplements were created equal as far as um, quality. So I'm sure you're saying, yeah, 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 that's all very well quantity, but what about the suitability of different uh, quality uh, of your different feeds out there for use to flush on? And, and look, you'd, look, you'd be very right um, saying that, and totally it's a given that flushing results will definitely be best on the higher quality of feeds pastures, crops, whatever you have on hand. So good quality feed, it's more palatable, it's more digestible, ewes can eat more of it um, and extract more energy per kilogram dry matter consumed. So I guess this is where we move the flushing topic on to next, which is attempting to answer, I guess, the next question on our list, which is, of course, what quality of feed is best to flush on? And I guess when we talk quality, you know, quality is a funny old term. It can define energy, protein, minerals, oh, you know, trace minerals, macro. I mean, yeah, quality is such a big topic. So I think for the purposes of flushing, our number one most important aspect of quality of flushing feed, pure and simply, is energy, which of course is the same thing as saying digestibility. So the best flushing outcomes that your ewes are going to have is when they are consuming pre-mating higher energy content feeds, provided of course there's enough quantity of those uh, higher energy content feeds. So it's an absolute given, this is totally gut feel isn't it, that of course we're going to um, give the ewes that you're going to be flushing first priority on the best quality forages or feeds or supplements that you have. And when we look at those feeds, we're most interested in the energy value of the feed. Now, of course, if we have a poor quality feed, poorly digestible pasture with a, um, a low ME, let's say, brown top dominant pasture, a drought year, there's very little green pick to be had. Even if we feed quite a bit of quantity of that brown top, burnt off, um, dry brown pasture, we're less likely to get a flushing effect because there's just not enough green leaf and therefore quality there. So, yeah, poor quality, you know, anything less than an ME of eight, eight and a half, it's certainly, and as you know, not going to work as well as if we had some amazing, oh, let's, let's say, um, irrigated, beautiful quality pasture with lots of clover in it, um, 12 ME or more. So, 
The other thing about the lower ME feeds, your pastures of eight or eight and a half, is that they tend to be very fibrous or high NDF or neutral detergent fibre. And for many ewes, she's not going to be able to um, easily harvest that very fibrous feed. And if she does eat it, it's going to sit in the rumen for quite a long time. And potentially her appetite or desire to consume feed will be low because of a gut full of poorly digestible fibre. So that's enough about burnt-off, drought-affected brown top is the worst case. I guess, what are some of the good types of forages to flush on? Well, there's a heap of different types of pastures and forage crops and supplementary feeds and yada, yada, yada out there. So we're not going to go into each and every one of those types of feeds because, of course, any of you listening in, um, to this podcast, you've probably got a whole raft of different stuff available to you and it's kind of hard to cover off all of that in one podcast. But... It's common sense, like it's a gut feel that if your pasture or crop is offering you or use a decent green pick of feed, it's going to do a much better job of flushing than if that same kilograms dry matter of feed was sitting there as um, rubbishy old brown top pasture, a very poor quality baleage or the like. But yeah, it is very much, again, just to reiterate that it's an interaction between the amount of feed and the quality of feed. Lots of uh, poor quality feed does not equate to underfeeding use on energy-dense feed, of course. But look, so yeah, it's definitely about identifying some of your better quality pastures for flushing use. And this is where some of the tensions sometimes happen uh, late summer through into autumn when you may be joining mating your ewes is that often you've still, well, probably all of you will still have lambs on if you're a breeder finisher. And of course... Who doesn't want cash flow? We all want cash flow. And there's always that tension, I suppose, that challenge between wanting to get your lambs finished rather than sending them store and yet also having good quality feed for you use to mate on. So we want cash flow. We keep those lambs on and it means we don't necessarily in some years have the right type of feed we need to flush on for your use. And we go without uh, lambing percentage the following season. It's a bit of a carryover effect. So... Oh, it's about having the courage, maybe. Oh, I don't, uh, this isn't a prescriptive thing to say, but maybe you, you send a few more lambs off a store rather than finishing them, despite wanting that cash flow. And I know the bank manager and accountant want the, want the cash flow just as much as you. Uh, and instead, um, preferentially feeding, particularly your lighter condition scored ewes um, that you may, may not otherwise be able to do. So if you still have a lot of lambs on, it's, it's a tough conversation, uh, not prescriptive here, but um, come on, we've, we've all had to work through these. Eh? It is difficult, but sometimes maybe have a, have a chat to your vet, your farm consultant um, or someone just to help you make sometimes a courageous decision that has to be made this year, but doesn't obviously turn into cash until next year, but something to think about. So that aside with the tension between finishing lambs and flushing ewes, what does a good flushing pasture look like? Look, it may be uh, areas that perhaps you do summer or winter annual cropping or cash cropping and behind those crops you've regrassed the old scungy old brown top areas into some, some modern higher performing pasture mixes with grasses, perhaps clovers or herbs grass species sort of got reduced aftermath heading so they don't throw as much seed head through the summer and the autumn and the like so might be the type of pasture you have it may be that you've still got cattle on and the cattle have done a really nice job of doing cleanup when it was grazed previously and there's good leaf coming through for um, a decent flushing feed so very much it's a visual thing you can do feed testing if you want but I think our gut feel tells us what's a, a good feed with a lot of green feed in it compared to 
tag and um, seed head and rubbish. It's a, it's a gut feel and knowledge thing, eh? What about your non-pasture foragers to flush on? Well, look, it's the same old story, and, and this is the irony and the tension is that a lot of those excellent quality lamb finishing foragers, so the likes of uh, chicory, chicory clover mixes, uh, agrotonic plantain and, and uh, plantain clover mixes that you put in place for your lambs may well have had two or three or four grazings earlier in the summer and then there's an opportunity to get the lambs off onto something else and actually to flush your lot of ewes on some of your lamb quality, high quality lamb feed. So it's a bit different to think about. Now the first thing you're probably shouting uh, at, at me about is that's all very well, uh, Charlotte. What about red clover? Is there is an effect for flushing on red clover that you might have otherwise grown for lambs? And yes, there could be. So hold that thought if you've rightly pointed that out. And, and we're going to come back to that shortly. So don't let that thought go away. Now, of course, the other forage type that many of you will have on farm that perhaps you're specifically planting for lamb finishing, uh, for growing uh, you know, your, your ewe lambs through to potentially hoggett mating or whatever, and therefore may present an opportunity for flushing feed are, of course, the range of uh, different brassica crops out there. So probably all of you have had or have got um, brassicas of some sort for lamb finishing, uh, or for maternal ewe lambs, leafy turnip through to palatal and raffinone brassica, the forage rapes, of course, and increasingly in some of the summer dry areas, we're seeing a bit of a blast from the past, a bit of a reversion back to some of you may remember from 20 or 30 years ago of actually planting, spring planting kales, such as firefly and regal kale and the like, um, not for winter feed, but actually for autumn feed as a, a bit of a, like a drought buffering strategy, I suppose, in early autumn. So, you know, if we run out of summer feed, the autumn goes dry, um, and yet we haven't had an autumn flush of grass after the first rains. Kale is increasingly being used there. So, yeah, all sorts of brassicas out there, and we'll kind of bundle them together in terms of the potential for these as a flushing feed. Now, as you'll know, I mean, this is why you graze them for lamb finishing, for a summer feed is that these brassicas will, of course, under almost all situations, provide you with an excellent quality high ME and moderate protein feed. So lamb finishing, yes, but similarly, particularly in years where perhaps pasture growth has failed us and you're left with some forage rape and then moving on to kale, to be honest, there's no specific reason why you shouldn't flush ewes on these feeds. The only comment here might be that to maximise chance of, of a good flushing outcome from ewes on brassicas, just remember and you think of your lambs that there is just a short transition period needed as your ewes move from grass onto brassicas for flushing. Now, if your ewes have seen brassicas before, there'll be no behavioural requirement to learn how to eat brassicas, but there's still a little bit of a rumen changeover effect. And because of that, probably if you're going to flush on brassicas, we'd suggest that you're allow, if your feed budget allows it, a decent minimum three weeks flushing period on brassicas, just so that the ewes have well and truly transitioned from a pasture-based diet to the brassica-based diet, um, and then still hopefully have a chance to get um, maybe even um, one cycle through, um, through her before she goes to the ram. However, if 
for example, you've had some concerns about light use earlier in the summer and you've already got some of your light use on brassicas, maybe uh, Peloton Raphno or Forage Rape, and you want to go into kale, well, there's no need to worry about transitioning because they've already done their stuff and sheep can bounce quite happily without transitioning from one type of brassica to another. So there's no problems about that. So that's pastures and forage crops. What about supplementary feeds? And we're thinking supplementary feeds for flushing ewes, uh, perhaps in a drought year, or or conversely, and and sadly uh, for parts of New Zealand this year in flood-affected areas. What about supplementary feeds? Well, I guess we'll start off with purchased in supplements. So it might be a sheep nut of some sort, a pellet. Um, it's based on cereal grains and perhaps a few other goodies. Or indeed whole grain, you know, like whole barley, um, wheat if you're careful, oats. Look, for sure, depending on what type of sheep nut or cereal grain that you have, these feeds can be excellent for flushing. However... Probably a couple of key points here. First, if you've got, it's not a drought year and you've got a heap of good quality pasture or forage crops on hand, it's less justifiable to add additional grain into the into the diet. If they've already got high ME pastures and feeds, all they'll do is what's called substitution. They'll eat those nuts or cereal grains, yummy, thanks very much, and they'll eat less grass. You're probably not going to be able to get a, uh, obvious effect on ovulation rate over and above if you just flush them on, on your good quality pasture or forage crops if you're having a better year at your place. If on the other hand, let's say drought or flooding conditions, you're really squeezed, like you're really struggling to find sufficient quantities of high quality forages to flush on, then of course the default of course is two cereal grains or sheep nuts, that may be a highly cost-effective option to protect next year's lambing numbers. And certainly in many cases, um, these products may be a more effective option uh, than, say, a very quality poor baleage that inevitably the price goes up on that severely in in these drought years or when feed shortages are around. So there was some New Zealand research carried out a long time ago, 1980s. That work concluded that if you offered either very good quality baleage of 11 ME or more, this could actually work as good as feeding barley grain in terms of the flush effect. But, and this is a really key, but this depends very much on the quality of baleage. And I'll be honest with you, we'd need something like baleage that is of sufficient quality for dairy cows um, during you know lactation. It's going to have to be really good quality. Preferably, it's going to be chopped in the bale, uh, not unchopped, because you've got two issues with ewes. One, they're going to have to want to eat the baleage, and two is that when they eat the baleage, it's ne- needing to be highly digestible to get that flush effect. So, sure, the research says in a very simplistic sense that uh, flushing on baleage is going to get as good an outcome as flushing on sheep nuts or cereals. But wow, baleage is a, it's a real spectrum of absolute rotten rubbish through to good quality stuff. So to compare that baleage and, and nuts or grain, it's, yeah, it's not that simple. And then, of course, if you are looking to purchase in uh, nuts or grain, and particularly sheep nuts, just to acknowledge there is, of course, a huge range of quality and type of sheep nuts out there. Some will have additives, some won't. Some will have more cereal grain than others. Some may have 
fillers to bulk them out that aren't quite as good a quality for the likes of palm kernel. Uh, and then you've just got to watch that copper effect for the sheep feeding as well. So there's lots of different feeds out there. So just do talk to your vet or uh, a qualified ruminant nutritionist and or just get the specification sheets on these products and know what you're buying because usually you get what you pay for, but sometimes you can pay quite a lot for something that may not be perfect. So yeah, just, just ask the questions. So that's all about energy for flushing, the quantity of feed multiplied by the energy value of the feeds. Out of all the nutrients in the feeds, just to reiterate, to remind us the energy content of the feeds for flushing on is is the number one thing we need to be shopping for, if you'd like, when you're deciding uh, forages and uh, supplements and that for flushing. The next nutrient that often comes, I suppose, in for discussion here is crude protein uh, for flushing feeds. Well, by all means, do stick with the amount of feed and the energy content of feed is the two most important things. But interestingly, like crude proteins, you know, it's it's also been looked at for flushing and internationally in different feed systems all over uh, the world. There is some suggestion that dietary crude protein may be important for flushing. And it just depends on the types of feeds, the protein contents in the feeds, etc. Because... New Zealand research over recent decades hasn't been as sure that crude protein's important uh, for flushing ewes on. And probably on this point, the reason that for most New Zealand situations we don't worry too much about protein is because usually when we're chasing good energy intake, so better quality pastures, forage crops, um, best quality baleage or whatever, when we're chasing it for the energy value, quite often those good quality forages and feeds contain enough protein for our ewes, our mixed age ewes particularly. Now mixed age ewes only need a diet of between 10 and 11% dietary crude protein and yeah, like, like we say, most of our common flushing feeds will easily deliver enough protein for our ewes. Now there is one or a couple of situations here where we need to take more notice of the protein content of flushing feeds. Now this would be for a couple of stock classes. This would be firstly um, assuming you know you've got a a lot of your hoggett ewe lambs have reached targets of your 40, 42, 44, wherever you need to be based on the type of uh, mature weights you have for your ewes. They will need more protein than mixed age ewes because of course they're still undertaking maternal live weight gain. So our hoggett lambs we want them growing an average of 150 grams a day without even looking for a flush effect. That's just to get their size getting closer and closer to the weights of your mixed-age ewes. The other stock class, of course, is two-tooths. So you may not hog it, mate, but your two-tooths came through a bit small after a hard summer um, as hoggets and into winter. And if they are going to go to the ram quite small, you may need protein that's a bit higher uh, as well as a high-quality, uh, high-energy feed for those two-tooths going to the ram because if they're smaller, because they've had a bit of a tough old season, they'll they'll also be doing some skeletal um, growth and some height growth that takes more protein than that 10 to 11% um, for your mixed age girls. So if you are flushing you hoggets and or you don't hog it mate and you're playing catch up on smaller two tooths going on the ram, you could need diets up to 14 or even 15% crude protein. So again, It's a gut feel. Uh, I suspect if you're into flushing, you're probably going to pick the best uh, flushing feeds for those two stock classes. And from the protein 
supply side of it, aside from the demand being different for mixed age versus younger ewes, some of our feed types might sometimes have sufficient energy to meet the requirements for flushing, but could be a bit lacking in protein. And I suppose the, the key ones that come to mind would be cereal grains, so like say a barley grain. And depending on nitrogen use on barley crop pre-harvest and stuff like that, you, you might be on the low side of protein, particularly for those uh, hoggets and or two-tooths that might be looking to do a bit of growing. But that said, because here in New Zealand we're unlikely to feed grain at a high proportion of a diet, like in Australia where you might be feeding 90% of a diet as grain, we tend to be a bit more cautious here in New Zealand and, and hopefully we still have some green pick of forage to feed with the grain and often that green pick will supply sufficient protein. Um, to balance out cereal grain-based diets. But summing up on this nutritional aspects around flushing ewes, I guess key take-home here, we need enough feed that contains sufficiently high amounts of energy per kilogram dry matter and or protein for some stock classes for flushing as the key focus of getting this flushing right, as well as the timing and how long you flush for. Now, moving along to our next topic around flushing. We've just said the feeds that we do like for flushing on. Are there any feeds that we should avoid for flushing use? Well, first up, when we're looking at our pastures, we certainly need pastures that have got a lot of green leaf, desirable grass species, clovers, maybe herbs. And when we look at some of these mixed swords, we're always looking at that pasture and seeing, are there things in there that the ewes may not like? Notwithstanding that ewes are very good at selective grazing, but have we got a high burden of unpalatable weeds? If, you know, um, grasses have had a bit of a tough old summer and they're looking a bit worse for wear with things such as a high rust burden, you know, when you get that, the orangey dust, it's not stuck to your boots when you walk through the pasture. If there's a lot of rust there, it won't harm the ewes pre-flush, but Obviously, the, the ewes aren't going to want to eat it because it's not particularly tasty, which isn't ideal when we're trying to flush them. So looking at our pasture, what's there, what the grasses look like, what the ratio of grass to companion species such as clover and herbs are like, all those things are all visual appraisal. But overall, we need green stuff, a burnt, dried off pasture with very little green material, completely different and a lot worse for flushing on than something that's lovely and green. So look for green, green is gold. What about crops and other types of forages? Now, there's a couple of topics here where I'm sure you'd be thinking we'd treat with a bit of caution for flushing. And I'm going to glance over these topics quite quickly. But if there's interest, and let us know if there is, we'll come back to each of these two topics that we're going to cover now for flushing. The first of which is flushing on lucerne, uh, or not, and the second of which is flushing on red clover, subterranean or subclovers as the se second topic. So very little detail here. If you want another podcast to cover these topics, we'll line that up for you. So lucerne. <laughs> Can we flush on lucerne? I guess the question is, and the answer to that is, it depends. It's probably not what you want to hear. You want yes or no, keep it black and white. It's not that simple. Hypothetically, so in theory, if your lucerne stand that you're eyeballing to have a look at whether you're going to put your use on it to flush, if your stand has had an amazing season, it's beautiful and healthy and luscious dark green, there's no evidence of foliar disease or insect 
um, pests that have been munching and crunching on it. And if the stand doesn't look stressed, there's been no drought stress or moisture stress or nutrient deficits, you know, deficiency of potassium, sulfur or anything else that's throwing the plant to look a bit stressed, there's a kind of an okay chance that you may be okay to flush on that lucerne. But as I say, it depends. And if in doubt, please don't follow advice from a podcast, but rather open that conversation with your veterinarian, with your farm consultant, with a ruminant nutritionist, if you've got a qualified one in your district, to assess the lucerne, maybe send some photos through to them and help you make the decision. If in doubt, and particularly if the lucerne's looking a little bit worse for wear, for those previously mentioned reasons, it's not so healthy looking, a lot of foliar disease, there's been a lot of pests that have taken out a lot of the green leaf, the stand's stressed for a range of reasons, probably, if in doubt, don't flush on it. Now, the reason we're saying about a healthy stand versus a stressed stand is that when lucerne plants get bothered by something, the plants will sometimes express an estrogenic compound that reduces ovulation rates, and therefore that's not ideal as a flushing feed. But as I say, don't follow a podcast, just be aware of it, and then have that conversation uh, with your vet, your farm consultant. It may be that you can put lambs onto the lucerne and wherever you're finishing lambs at the moment in a rotation, you can put your ewes on there, those sorts of things to think about. Now, as we mentioned, the second forage that sometimes has a question mark over it around flushing on it is, of course, red clover and sub or subterranean clover. So those two classes of clovers, again, can produce an estrogenic compound. It's a different type of compound compared to the lucerne one, but it works in the same way to suppress or, or drop ovulation rate down and use that are flushed and then um, even mated on these clovers. If you Google um, red and subterranean clovers, you're going to get a lot of hits about a lot of disasters, particularly in older publications, older scientific papers. But the good news is, to be fair, is that over the last 30 to 40 years, our plant breeders have made some amazing improvements in selecting against the levels of the estrogenic compound that is found in both red and subclovers. So through really good selective processes, our modern cultivars have much lower levels of this estrogenic compound in uh, the foliage of the plant compared to the older red clovers and subclovers. That said, even our modern cultivars of red and subclovers will still have some of that estrogenic compound present. So worst case, if we were to plant a pure stand, let's say of red clover, the red clover plant was stressed, was deficient in phosphorus from a, a soil fertility point of view, and a couple of other factors, sometimes you will have pure red clover stands expressing some estrogenic compound, the one that's specific to red and subs, that may impact on flushing. So if in doubt, again, please discuss this risk or possible risk with your own vet or farm consultant or nutritionist. To be honest, if you want to flush on red or sub-clover um, pastures, I guess we follow the old adage about dilution is the solution and to plant these clovers as part of a mixed crop. So it might be that you plant your reds with white clovers as well, which is handy for whites filling in the gaps between the individual red clover plants. Anyway, it's quite a nice mix. You can include herbs uh, if 
Weed pressure allows you to do so, so for the likes of chicory or agritonic plantain. But if in doubt, yeah, just discuss this with someone that knows your farm better than, than uh, us talking away on a podcast. Now, it's always that discussion, I guess, in years when you're very, very short of feed and grass-based pastures may have taken a hammering from drought and yet your clovers and lucent look really, really good. In these situations, it's about making a, a measured decision around risk. Is it better on the first hand to flush and make use on lucerne, red or subclovers that are not without risk for reduced ovulation rate? Or on the other hand, that um, that you'd go, well, I don't want to risk any um, estrogenic compounds in either my lucerne or red and subclovers. And you know what? I'm just going to put them in some burnt off um, brown top that's, you know, two centimetres in height uh, with no green pick. And I guess at the end of the day, the risk is more about feeding the ewes well, small risk of estrogenic compounds being present versus the ewes being fed at a level that it could even be sub-maintenance and they're losing weight as they're about to go to the ram. So it's a real hypothetical uh, discussion point around that one. Okay, we've reached the last part of this podcast around flushing and the effects on ovulation of your ewes. Now, what we're going to do is rattle, rattle off a list, I suppose, and I'm literally going to list these things of the many other factors other than nutrition in terms of energy and protein intake that can influence ovulation rate and use. But I think it's important to acknowledge that despite our best efforts with flushing, there's other things that can influence ovulation rate and use other than what we've covered so far. So here you go. There's going to be a list here. Number one other thing that influences ovulation rate other than nutrition. Number one is the stage of the breeding season that the ram goes out. Now, of course, all of you know that uh, sheep, unlike cattle, are very much seasonal breeders and uh, they're just really not really interested into, into meeting up with the ram midsummer. But as we head into autumn, obviously they become more interested. So the early season heats, the first few cycles, once a use from a seasonality point of view starts to resume cycling, the early uh, season heats are going to have a lower ovulation rate than when she's had a better number of cycles heading into the autumn, which is more likely to have multiple ovulations. Number two effect on ovulation rate, other than flushing, you age. And of course, our friends, the you hoggets, even if we hit whatever your individual live weight target is to decide which ones will go through to be two tooth mated or whether you're going to mate some of the ram as hoggets, uh, you hoggets, as you well know, have a lower ovulation rate. So you're going to have a lot more singles and fewer multiples in your hoggets. That's sort of, it's a bit of a no-brainer, that one you knew very well, of course. Number three, this is probably another one that you're very familiar with, and that's around genetics, which of course have a lot to answer for with ovulation success. Now, You'll all have your own take on this and, uh, you know, your favourite ram breeders and what genetics you have on farm. But clearly the likes of your fins, I mean, you know, they came to New Zealand to improve ovulation rates uh, over and above some of the more traditional breeds. And yet what we're talking about, um, uh, flushing, bizarrely, fins are apparently less likely to respond to a rising plant in nutrition than other sheep breeds. So go figure. But they are inherently, of course, in terms of fecundity, they're most likely to throw multiple ovulations. Number four ovulation effects is latitude effects, so like whereabouts in New Zealand, 
or elsewhere you are around the world and um, whether you're closer to the equator or closer to the South Pole. And here in New Zealand, being a long, thin country, we've obviously got quite a range here in New Zealand. And on average, if we have just a latitude effect and, and dissect out all the breed effects and everything like that, we've got on average better ovulation rates in the South Island than in the North Island. Number five, what about the negative effects of estrogenic compounds? Now, we've already mentioned this as it relates to red and subclovers, but also we can have issues with pasture-based diets for flushing on if we have heat and humidity and you get fungi growing at the base of that sward. One particular type of fungi as a species is fusarium, fusaria, and they can throw a range of not very nice mycotoxins that can make our animals feel unwell, but specifically for flushing and mating on these pastures where there is a high presence of fusarium, we can get one estrogenic mycotoxin called xarelinone. And in terms of where in New Zealand this has been most often repeated uh, in the literature over a period of history is, for whatever reason, in east coast pastures of the North Island of New Zealand, uh, Fusarium and Xarelinone is another topic another day. Perhaps if you want your very own podcast recorded for that, just let us know. And while we're talking on thatch and heat and humidity, of course, we can't ignore the simply awful effects uh, of sporodesmin toxicity, otherwise known as what we call facial eczema here in New Zealand. Now, that will mess up reproductive performance of your ewes for sure. Liver, as we mentioned before, the liver is a very important part of the inside of your use for processing and repackaging and re-exporting all of the different nutrients that come from the gut. And if we have either acute, that's real sudden, or chronic effects of uh, sporadism toxicity, reproductive performance fails, but so does a whole lot of other things as well in terms of condition gain and well-being and welfare and lots of other things. Number six is the nutrition of that ewe lamb while she's still inside mum's tum. Now, this is a result of fetal nutritional programming or maternal programming, which is beyond the scope of today. But there's a lot of uh, evidence that the nutrition of that ewe lamb while she's still inside mum's tum can affect things in terms of reproductive performance as well as that wool follicle performance later in life. So this fetal effect of ewe nutrition while the ewe lamb is in mum's tum is an important factor here. As well as that, obviously, the nutrition of the young newborn lamb through to hoggit or two-tooth mating, but particularly during that first age of up to 12 months is important in setting those ewe lambs up as to how well they're going to mate uh, both as hoggets or two-tooths or mixed-age ewes. Point number seven that influences ovulation success is the role for pre-mating shearing and how that affects mating success. And this seems particularly true for two-tooths compared to mixed-age ewes. Point number eight in things that change ovulation rate is, of course, vaccination with the likes of your Androvax plus um, Ovastim. But yeah, certainly the vaccination opportunities to change ovulation rate can't be ignored. Number nine is another aspect around the animal health and well-being of your ewes, and that, of course, is the parasite burdens. 
on ewes and ewe hoggets pre-mating, which is obviously becoming even a more and more, uh, what would you say, controversial topic with us trying to avoid unnecessary drenching of ewes. So we're going to leave this topic very much with your own veterinarian to discuss this directly with you about and whether there's any benefits of pre-tup or pre-mate drenching of your lighter ewes or whatever. I'll leave it alone. It is a controversial topic. Number 10 point influencing ovulation rate is, of course, the RAM effect uh, of RAMs and the lovely odours and uh, hormonal effect of the RAM presence, either as teasers or the actual entire RAMs being introduced to bring use on. And of course, that RAM effect much stronger than the bull effect and is important in setting up ovulation success. And finally, on these random things that also influence ovulation success, and this is a true couple of nutritional ones that probably should have been further up my priority list, but it isn't, uh, is of course the selenium and iodine status of your use going to the RAM. So yeah, probably should have gone into this in more detail, but I think what we'll do is we'll cover off selenium and iodine in another podcast because they're both really important uh, trace minerals for all of your sheep on farm with your young lambs right through to your mixed age ewes going to the ram and then ultimately through the winter uh, making sure that levels of selenium and iodine are adequate uh, as ewes start to lamb down. So we'll park that one and come back to that one. Well, in the meantime, that's another podcast done and dusted. Everything to do with maximising ovulation success with their ewes as they go to the ram. Thanks so much for listening in. I really hope you found something, even if it's something a little bit useful or interesting amongst the various topics that we've bounced around today. Do keep an ear out for our next podcast. Let us know from a feedback point of view what you'd like to hear more about. Love to hear from you so we keep this really relevant to what makes this series of podcasts most useful to you in your day-to-day jobs. So this has been Charlotte Westwood. I work with the PGG Rights and Seeds team here at Lincoln. Thanks so much for joining us and we're really looking forward to you catching us again with the next podcast very, very soon. Have an awesome day. Cheers. Cheers.